Hello and welcome to another episode of Women Who Sport podcast. This week we are chatting to Stacey Copeland. She is like Commonwealth champion boxer. She's played football for England. She's just like an unbelievably cool person and she had us in absolute stitches. Also a big thank you to our two partners, Locker Stash Rugby, um, good humans that do good things kind of in the rugby community and um, selling pre-loved kit and also boob armor um, again kind of a fairly new company that are looking to kind of break into the UK market um, protecting women and their breasts in, in predominantly high impact contact sports. So we had another incident in training last night where somebody got hit in the boob and I was like boob armor. Boob armor exactly it happens. <laughs> Sweet, right. So before we get into it with Stacey, let's go for roundup of the week. So do you want to kick it off first? What's your low? Okay, so we're going to start with negatives. Um, reading Sunday newspaper a couple of days ago, um, out of what the four or five could have been six pages, there was only one small segment on women's sport. Um, it happened to be a rugby, it was the bottom right-hand corner, and it was to say that Natasha Hunt was not playing in the Grand Slam match because of a positive COVID test. And that was all. That was the only coverage of women's sport in the Sunday paper. We've really got to get coronavirus to get on the news. <laughs> yeah, it's mad. Absolutely mad. <laughs> so my low is that when I was editing our episode the other day, I was playing it out loud and my girlfriend Lizzie was in the room and she was like, and this was when you had a cold, so this was when your voice was not at its peak. And she said, Bonnie's got such a nice voice, it really balances yours out. <laughs> Thank you, Lizzie. Thank you. Like, She's got a cold. <laughs> so, yeah, Maybe the husky worked for me, it's still not fully recovered. <laughs> the raspy thing, isn't that? That's mm. the thing, isn't it? Mm, yeah, it is. <laughs> okay, positive. My positive, to be fair, I actually don't know how new this is because I'm not following it, but what I thought we, we should mention, it's kind of celebrates diversity, is Nicola Adams on Strictly Come Dancing having a female partner. Yes, agreed. So cool. Yeah, I thought that was quite a cool one to kind of draw attention to. We should see if she'll, she'll come on the podcast. Yeah, that would be a very cool episode. Maybe we should have one series of just like, heroes and inspirations Catherine Granger Nicola Adams like. I thought you were going to say lesbians <laughs> no darling it's like don't think we can do that um okay right so my high of the week is I seen that they've do you know how you get like the it's like sticker books when you were younger and you would collect like stickers of like it was always male football players oh yeah so we kind of had something similar me and my brother collected basketball cards yeah, well, they've brought out a uh, like women's one, and um, we can really collect cool. all the women's teams for the English Prem. That's really cool for football. Yeah, for football, I think we should bring out a rugby one. I think that could be how we make our millions. Yeah, that or could be hundreds. very cool. I was going to say millions. <laughs> <laughs> that's how we can make our cutting even. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. So that was my high. Those were good ones. Yeah, that was good. Sweet, let's um, get Sharon Martin on. Always be proud of who you are, girl. Gotta hold your head up high. Don't let this moment pass you by. You can be anything you believe you can be, girl. This world is waiting just for you. So go and shine and live the truth. You can be anything.
I believe you can be. You've mentioned in the media uh, you grew up in quite a relatively boxing oriented household with both your granddad and your dad as fighters. However, growing up as a youngster, you played football, which at the time was, I guess, also deemed as still quite a male dominated sport. Um, how did footy come, become your sport of choice? Do you know what? I, I really don't know because my family are all crap at football. So I honestly don't know how that happened. It's pretty obvious with boxing what, you know, what might have introduced me to it. Because like, as you just said, my, my dad was a boxer. My granddad runs our boxing gym. So it was it is in the family. But football, nobody's, nobody's any good. We've got a couple of boxers, a couple of rugby players and no footballers. So I really don't know. I just remember being at school, uh, well, being a little one and wanting to kick the ball about and enjoying it. But then at school, at like playtime and lunchtime, that I had friends who were girls, but the stuff they were doing, it just didn't interest me. I didn't want to do that thing with elastic bands. Um, I didn't want to do yeah. hot spot. I certainly didn't want to do weddings every day like they were doing. Just wasn't <laughs> um, but the lads, majority of them were, you know, almost all back then were playing football and it's what I wanted to do. So I, don't, I just don't know what drew me to it, but I just loved it. Yeah. We, we were a bit like that at primary school as well. All the lads were playing football in the field and I was like, that's way more fun than playing doctors and nurses. <laughs> I'm surprised that school football didn't put you guys off because in my primary school, it was like, they had to like make rules so that you would pass to the girls. Like you can't pass, like you can't score a goal unless you pass to the girls and stuff to like, to get us included. Like that absolutely put well, me off. It was only me. There weren't any other, there was honestly literally me and about a gazillion lads. Because I mean, you play like 20 a side on, a tiny playground don't you so there's you can't even really play football because there's like 10 people at once trying to kick the ball because yeah. there's loads of people in a dead small space but it was only me I was the only girl so um I suppose it was a sink or swim really. So you started at school and then kind of went into club and after pushing the boundaries in order to play um on one of your TED talks you spoke about your mum cutting your hair short so you kind of looked like a boy to fit in um like what kind of drew you to those drastic measures as such? Again, do you know, it's difficult, isn't it, to say what... Uh, this is where the nature versus nurture thing is interesting, of, like, we're, we're aware that as athletes at any... Well, any level of, of sport, you kind of build up resilience and certain things along the way. But part of it, I think, is in some of us, um, and you can see it in some kids from an early age. And perhaps I was one of them because it just didn't like the minute that um that that happened when I was made to leave the, the footy pitch I did feel horrible obviously it was an horrible feeling but I didn't think right that's it I can't play that just didn't enter my head instead I was like right if you can only be a boy then I need to look like a boy and then and that was my whole thought process like mom you've got to cut my hair and I had this shocking bowl cut which was just horrific. I shouldn't have been allowed to play football, not because of my gender, but because of that haircut. But um, yeah, it meant that I could play. So I really don't know what it was as a young kid, because I was about, about seven, I think, then. I don't know what it was that, that that sort of where that came from, but it was definitely in me to, to want to play no matter what. So um, I, to me, the answer to that is that I felt like it was the only choice at the time. If I really wanted to play, that felt like the only way that I could. Yeah. And, it, and I guess it paid off because then at the age of 17, you got your first England call-up, which is pretty impressive. Um, we kind of described that moment. Well, it had actually come off the back of um, not getting picked at the first trials. So 
And when I went for the first trials, there was about six of us who were like really, really good friends, um, four of us in the same team. And I, I had a great time at the trials, to be honest. I scored two, I got four assists, just had a really, really good couple of games. And I thought, you know, I've, you know, when you know you've done well, and I thought I've, I've done really well here. Like this, yeah. this is, I didn't expect to play so well because obviously I was extremely nervous and everything. And I was the only one who didn't get picked for the first England camp. And they'd said that um, the feedback was that I came out of position too much. But I think I'd played loads and loads of positions at my club. I was kind of used to being a bit everywhere, you know, and I didn't uh, quite show the discipline that they wanted at the time in the in the England squads. And it was honestly, it was so devastating. It was it was just horrendous. Like at 16, I felt like that's it. Which you do, don't you? you know, like in the moment, especially when you're young, you're like, that's it. It's all yeah. over. Um, like the world is ending. Oh, it's that sort of feeling. <laughs> it was my world. It actually was my world. So yeah. it was absolutely, oh, it was, it was just the most gutting feeling. So then when I got the chance to go to one of the other camps and then I got picked on the back of that for the Europeans, it was just the most amazing feeling. And, and back then you used to get a letter. So it's email and stuff now, as you'll know, for international call-ups but then it was it was a letter and it was just the most exciting thing sort of getting the envelope with the the FA crest on it and being like oh, this is it you know and uh, <laughs> opening it up oh my god it was just the most exciting thing ever it was uh it, it, I think I almost feel as if no matter what you go on to do that very first international call-up as, as a youngster there's not really anything else like of any age for that matter that very first one there's something extremely special about it, no matter what you go on to do. Yeah, I completely agree that it's like a, it's not, it's just like a, it's paying off. It's that sort of feeling, isn't it? And it's yeah. the start of something incredible, isn't it? It's, yes, there's there's all that work you've put in, but it's it's that opening that door to, oh, what all your dreams, you know? It's, yeah. It's the first door opening is is pretty special. So you're clearly like super talented at football. What was it then that made you transition to boxing? Well, I'd, I'd always had a love of boxing. I've done that since being a kid. And then when I thought I'd be able to box at like the age of 11, uh, me and my little lad mates who were like in a little training group together went to my granddad and, you know, we said, oh, ready to get carded, like ready to box. And he was like, he just said to me, oh, you can't box. And I said, what, what are you on about? And he said, well, it's illegal for girls. I said, what? And I couldn't believe it. First of all, I thought it was ridiculous that a sport could be illegal. It's not like a crime. Do you know, that felt weird how it could be legally something you couldn't do. That was odd to me. Also, the fact that to literally not belong in it, it by law felt bizarre, given that it was one of the places I felt myself most. You know, it was where I was my happiest. It was really weird. But there wasn't anything I could do about that. You know, that wasn't a matter of having your hair cut and winging it. It was, uh, I, I just couldn't. So I'd always had this love of boxing and I'd kept up with my training my whole football career. So in the off season, I was always boxing. And then I think I'd just done everything I wanted to do in football. You know, I played for my country. I played abroad. I was in America for, you know, five years and Sweden I went to and all that. And the last broken leg that I had in football changed something in me for the sport, without a doubt, um, that I never recovered from. And I just think... It was like a perfect storm, if you know what I mean. Boxing was legal by then. I'd been to watch the Women's National Boxing Championships while I was home on summer from America. And I thought, I think I can do this. Like, you know, and it, it started that, you know, once that starts in the back of your mind. It, so to be honest, it wasn't a matter of making the decision. 
as you'll know through starting this podcast or doing other things, it feels like a decision at some point, but then you kind of go over that little bump and it's just such a driving force to do it. It feels like it ceases to be a decision. It's just something you have to do and there's just this massive driving you to do it. And that's how it felt with me for boxing, that my feeling towards football had changed and I'd always wanted to, to know if I could do it as a boxer. It was a massive burning desire in me and uh, it felt like the, the, the opportunity was there and I didn't want to miss it. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I, I get that. I've transitioned sports myself and you just kind of get a feeling, I guess. Mm. Um, and, and it paid off. You then became the first ever British female to win the Commonwealth title. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, um, so I'd, I was an amateur for about six years and um, had pretty much done everything that I was able to do as an amateur because the, there was no Olympics for, for me in my weight category because there's not... Uh, equal weight categories for women in boxing at the Olympics, same at the Commonwealth Games. So I'd just won, won my European silver just before the Glasgow um, Commonwealth Games. And that was that was devastating not, not to be able to go, you know, and actually to sit in the stands watching, you know, my friends who I'd just been competing with at the top level. And that literally was just because of inequality. And it was it was horrible, absolutely horrible. But I'd been to the world, I'd been to the Europeans, I'd, I, you know, and I was getting ready to go back to them. And I got like a horrendous injury where, well, the injury itself wasn't, it was, you know, like a meniscus or whatever. And I should have been back within six to eight weeks um, to go back to the Europeans and worlds a second time. Because for the whole two years, that's that all I'd been doing was getting ready to go back to the Europeans and worlds. And I had a really basic surgery, you know, like a quick meniscus repair. And uh, they made a mistake in the surgery and had a, second degree chemical burn all over my leg when I woke up and it was just horrific. It got infected, it got really ill. So it was 12 months in the end and I had to have like a lot of intensive burns treatment and just the whole thing was like a, you know, like a nightmare that don't feel real, but it, but it is. So it was just awful. And again, it comes to those turning points, those key turning points in, in life where that was where I thought, what's the point in staying amateur now? Because Every day I was waking up, I was thinking all I'm going to be doing is getting ready for the same tournament again. It was another two years till the Worlds and Amateurs, at Worlds and Europeans. And I just thought it wasn't, you know, you know, that thing you need to wake up in the morning, that that fire to train and push yourself. It wasn't there. Um, but when I thought about going pro, it was because I need that equal excitement and fear to really push me. And it was a scary proposition thinking about turning pro because no, there, there weren't really many at the time there's obviously been a big influx now which is great but back then there was six in the whole country six professional female boxers and a lot of them are inactive and so I thought do you know what this is this is what I need to do and after you know a couple of years of having a few fights we got the opportunity to go to Zimbabwe and fight for the Commonwealth title and it was just just an incredible experience. On that Commonwealth title you won, um, again, on one of your TED Talks, we actually love the TED Talks, <laughs> you, yeah. you spoke about the Commonwealth belt and obviously everyone knows, like in the men's, that's like the huge thing. As soon as you're a champ, like the belt comes out. What happened with that? It's mental that there was no belt for like a female champion. Yeah, so what happened was we flew out there and it was a really difficult week because my luggage was lost at first, which you'll know, when you go on as a tourist, you know, it's still inconvenient, but that's about it. When you're about to fight in the biggest fight of your life, 
you kind of need your gum shield, you need your, your boots, your kit, you know, everything was in there. And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe it. So we were thinking, right, we might have to just get a gum shield from somewhere and um, get a kit. But I mean, I, I would have thought no matter what, like I just would have had a, you know, I obviously have a custom gum shield, but I was thinking we just have to get one off the shelf and boxing trainers and a random pair of shorts. I'm not bothered. Like this fight's going ahead. So we had all that to deal with. Then I didn't have any electric in my room. Like when we first got there, it was a brilliant hotel. It was just, just that particular room. And um, so, you know, when there's loads of things and you're like, Oh my God. And I'd put um, a tweet out sort of going, Oh, just my luck. My luggage has been lost. I've got no electricity in my room, but you know, it doesn't matter. Did it? And the next day I was in the Harari Gazette or whatever it was called the paper and like the, their equivalent of a mayor or whatever had been like, this will not happen again. We will sort it out. And I was like, oh my God. And like picked up on my tweet. And I was like, nobody in this country didn't even care. They'd be like, oh, is there some female athlete with no good? Glad she hasn't got any electric. Yeah. <laughs> really different. I was like, oh no. So um, it was like a bit of a mad week really, but it was just incredible. Like we went to visit um, ghouls and an animal sanctuary, which was amazing. Cause I'm, I'm really scared of like all animals. I love them, but I'm dead scared. So I was like right near an elephant and a giraffe and stuff. I was well brave, um, but we, we loved it. And then we went, went to visit a couple of children's homes and all oh, the people were just so warm and uh, kind and welcoming. It was just an amazing experience. So then the fight itself, I mean, the build up all week was unreal because it was the first time any Brits had boxed. It was three of us, um, sorry, four of us, me and, and three three lads uh, from England. And it was the first time any Brits had boxed in Zimbabwe for 36 years. It was Ken Buchanan, actually, uh, who's Scottish. He was the last person to fight there. <laughs> it was a big deal. And there was, you know, it was all over the, like we're in, when we were in the van, it was all over the news and the radio. And I kept hearing interviews of the saying, you know, I'm going to put her to sleep. I'm doing it. And I was like, just trying to chill in the van here, but never mind. Um, so it was a totally different build-up to what I've been used to. And it was, you know, it was on their continental sports channel. So it was there was massive viewing figures. So it was, it was pressure that I'd not had before. Anyway, we had the fight. I, I, obviously, I won the fight. And then I didn't get the belt. And I don't know, it was... I, I thought the worst moment would be in the ring after, because that's kind of the point, isn't it? You know, you whatever, whatever it is, you... you race for or play for or fight for it's that belt or medal or trophy whatever it might be in your sport that's the point to hold it and be like yeah this is what I've won and you know like me and my coach didn't have that moment together and we never will you know there's no photos of us with the belt after that we didn't get that moment like any other sports team or individual does when they win those pinnacle things and that was horrible in itself but then when I came home, everyone was so excited to see the belt. And obviously, as you know, like when stuff like that happens, your phone goes crazy, doesn't it? And everyone's messaging you and they're dead excited. And it had been live streamed back home, so everyone had watched it. And they were like, we can't wait to see the belt. It's coming home, it's coming home. And I just didn't have the heart to say to everyone they're in the belt because it, it would have put a dampener on it for everybody. But I also didn't know that so many of my family and friends and my coach's family and friends would turn up at the airport to surprise us. And coming out at the airport and everybody was cheering and they were dead excited, they were really emotional. And then there was kind of just this hush where they were like, get the belt and get the belt. And you know to have to say, I haven't got one. I mean, that probably is one of the moments in my life when I felt more like a, a second-class human being than ever. It, yeah. more, more so than when I was that seven-year-old kid because they had less understanding of it back then. Now I knew it was wrong. 
and everything I'd been through, I was still working full time at the school. And I mean, that what I'd gone into getting ready for that fight and, and what I'd put myself through to get ready. And it, it was just a horrible, horrible feeling um, to be you know, made to feel that way. And then, so of course, I, I rang the head of the Commonwealth Boxing Council um, and I said, what an amazing experience it had been, what a great weekend. But not having the belt was not the not quite the fairy tale that I'd had in mind. To which he said, oh, you know, I can explain the situation. The manufacturers of the replica belt have ceased production. So I said, well, what's that got to do with me? And he said, well, you know, we do replica belts for women and real belts for men. So I said, what? That's mad. Yeah. So he said, well, there's more money in men's boxing. I said, I know, but surely, you know, I'm never, ever going to have that moment back again. If, even if it meant paying for it with my own money, surely I should have had the option to have that belt in that moment. And I said, right, you know, it's done. We can't change what's happened. How quickly can I have a real belt? To which he said, well, you can have one within a couple of weeks, but unless you've got a sugar daddy, probably won't be able to have one. And again, it's really, really hard to put into words what that burning sense of injustice feels like to be spoken to in that manner. And I said, you know, you shouldn't have said that. Well, I didn't mean it in that way. I said, whatever way you meant it, it's very patronising, it's very derogatory. You know, it's not. It's just not something you should say to a professional athlete who's just been out and made history. And, you know, and I, I work full-time anyway. I always have throughout my career, I've had to. And I'm proud to have done so. So... Anyway, we, you know, we kept, I didn't say what I wanted to say and we, we kept the, um, you know, conversation going and they, you know, I said that I really, this can't happen to another future female champion. So they agreed to make a, a women's Commonwealth title belt. So I got the first one in December 2018 and I'd boxed in the July. Um, so it was a while, but it was, it was worth the wait. And it was lovely this weekend, actually watching the, watching the, the boxing on Sky and there was two really young fighters fighting for the Commonwealth title and it was, it was that belt. Obviously, I've got my own. You know, it was it was their weight category belt, but it was the women's belt, and it was just such a nice feeling to think that's how it should be, and that's there for them now, and that's exactly what I'm I'm here to do, as we all are. It is what I think of as paving the way for the next generation, just as those who came before have done for us. So, did you know prior to that fight that there wouldn't be a belt at the end of it? Yeah, I only knew on the Wednesday, but we didn't know for sure. So what happened was um, on the Wednesday, the promoter had that conversation with me and said, we've got a bit of a problem. And I thought it was going to be a problem with the opponent, like saying, you know, she's ill or she's injured or something like that. And I was like, oh, no, the fight's going to be off. And he said, there's no belt. And I went, what are you talking about? And he said, they've not, they've not sent one. They said they, they haven't got one to send. And I was like, mm, no, that's we're fighting for a title. Like that's not, that's not a thing. <laughs> so that's what happened. And then the promoter, in fairness to him, was brilliant. And he contacted one of the uh, women fighters in, um, can't remember where it was. It, I can't remember what country it was, but he contacted her. She just won it like a, a few months before, and they asked if her coach or somebody could send the belt uh, and he'd pay for it. And we thought that was going to happen. There was someone going to actually fly with it to the fight. And then the night before they couldn't come. So he'd said to us, so we, we were like that touch and go, whether there'd be a belt. And then, you know, on the Thursday night, he said, right, they're not, they're not able to bring it. So there's not going to be one. And it was, it was really hard to be honest, you know, already knowing that there wouldn't be that there and then having to go into the fight 
because part of it, as as we all know, with with sports people, visualization is you know it can be a deliberate thing where people sit there and think of that moment on the podium or crossing the finish line or whatever it might be, scoring a try or you, you visualize it. But then it's also something that's maybe not deliberate, but it is there in your mind. That thought of lifting that trophy or having that medal and, and having that belt is something that drives you. And I added a, added a picture of the Commonwealth belt with me all the time in the build-up. So I'd had it in my car, at work, in my bedroom, constantly looking at this picture of the belt to kind of drive me. So it was really odd going into the fight, knowing that there wouldn't be one. It was very, very strange knowing that no matter what, I wouldn't have that moment that I'd that really had been dominated my thoughts from waking up to going to bed for all those months but um so it, it was tough in that way but that that's that's what sports people are good at as well and one of the things that sports teaches you I think that you know the bits you can't control you don't you know use all your energy upon it it's much better to focus on what you can control which was winning the fight because no matter whether there was a belt there or not I would always be champion um, and that's what mattered. So that's what we had to. That's what we had to do. God, that is outrageous. You should have um, got the picture of the belt out when you got to the airport. Me and my coach, there is a picture of us with the picture of picture the belt of the in the belt. ring because it was like. Well, I said to him, I said we went to ringside. I said, bring the picture of that belt because whichever one of us wins it, we're having a picture with that at the end. Because what I didn't want is people to think we'd got it. Or maybe they didn't film that bit or maybe they've done it at the side of the ring. I said, we need a picture with the belt so we can say, look, there's no belt. And people picked up on it on social media and were like, why is there a picture of the belt? Da, da, da. And then I didn't write anything because I think it's better if you don't in some circumstances and instances. But everybody else did. And everyone was like, oh, she didn't get a belt because they didn't have one. Everyone's like, what? Da, 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 and all that. So um, it's bizarre, isn't it? But how many stories are there like that for women in sport over the years and you know, Paralympians and people of colour and, you know, all sorts of situations where these inequalities have sadly made their way into sport, which is horrendous for those of us that love sport because we know it's one of the most powerful things on the planet for bringing people together and making a difference and that those, you know, ugly bits of society creep into such a beautiful thing is, is horrible, but it, but it does. Next on, we wanted to chat about like paving the way and everything you do for women's sport and stuff. So you've literally just taken us there, like <laughs> real nice transition. But so before that, I've got like a quick question about your knee. So when you came round from that surgery, what, were you like, yeah, something's wrong? Or did the surgeon come in and was like, I've totally botched it? No, I knew straight away something was wrong. I woke up and my, my boyfriend, who I was with then, was there. Uh, not the first, I remember waking up the first time and having this horrific pain in my toes. And I was like, ah, my toes are killing, my toes are killing. And I was, there was nobody in the room. I was in the recovery room on my own. And I was like, my toes, my toes. I remember shouting. And then this woman coming through and saying, oh, take that off. That shouldn't be on. And they took it off and I literally went straight back out. And then I woke up like properly in, and I was in the actual ward thing then. And um, my boyfriend was there. And I kind of came around and he was like, oh, are you okay? And I went, yeah, yeah, I'm all right. And then I, I remembered sort of coming around and taking a couple of breaths like you do and you're a bit groggy, aren't you, obviously? And then feeling just this horrendous pain at the top of my leg, like my upper thigh. And I was like, is that is that real? Because you know when that sort of 
a bit out of it, aren't you, after anaesthetic and stuff? And I was thinking, but I've, I've had nine surgeries, so I know how it generally feels after, you know, and I've had five on my knees, so I'm a bit of, bit, you know, bit of an old hat with knee surgeries, unfortunately. So I know how they should feel, and I know it doesn't hurt halfway up your leg. And it wasn't that surgery ache, you know, or even the surgery sharp pain, it was something else. And I was thinking, and he was saying, are you okay? And I was going, no, I'm in loads of pain. And he was going, oh, you're bound to be, darling. It's, and I was like, no, no, there's something not right. And he was saying, I know, just, it's all right. And I think he thought I was just panicking and a bit, you know, a bit drugged up or whatever. And I laid there for a couple of minutes sort of thinking, no, no, it's definitely, no, I am awake. I do know what I'm talking about. There is something wrong. And I said to him, there's something burning. And he said, what do you mean? I said, my leg is burning. I feel like, you know, like when you touch the iron or something, it's that throb. I said, it's, it's, bur it's burning. My leg's burning. And he definitely thought I was like, woo, she's had a few too many, a bit much morphine. And he's going, okay, like, I think we need to just draw a sip of water. I'm like, no, it's burning. It's really burning. I said, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. And I said, you're going to have to. And I, I went to sit up and I felt so sick when I sat up. Honestly, I can't even begin to tell you. The room started spinning. I was like, oh. So I laid back down. I said, you're going to have to have a look. And it, it's a bit gross, this, but as he as he pulled the cover, it was stuck to my leg. And as he pulled it, I was like, ah! And he was like, what, what? And I was like, there's something wrong, there's something wrong. And was, oh my God, it was horrendous. I went into panic, like I went into a bit of shock because I got goosebumps everywhere. I was going hot and cold just with the pain. And he sort of lifted the cover and he went a bit pale. And I was like, what is it, what is it, what is it? And I thought, oh my God, there's a bone stuck out. There's my legs missing. Like what's going on? And he says, um, yeah, there's something not right. And I'm like, what is it? What is it? So eventually I kind of settled myself, sat up. We pulled the cover off my leg and there was just this horrific burn all over my leg. And I was like, what the hell is that? Like what has happened? And the, the awful thing was, and it affected me mentally for a very long time because you, you kind of, you are completely in someone else's care when you have a surgery or something because you're not conscious. Like you go into their care, you count to 10, you have this really nice <laughs> feeling where you go, woo, and that's it. They're the yours. Do you know what I mean? You're theirs, I mean, for however long. And you, you completely trust them because they should be trusted, the medical people, and you put your entire life in their hands. And to wake up with this horrific injury and you've no idea how that's happened was a real, it had a real impact on me. And um, so anyway, that, that's where it went from there. And then the woman came in and said, oh, it's a bit of friction. And I was like, what friction, what they're talking about. And then my mum came up to visit um, and I had to stay in overnight because I was, I was really quite unwell. And we went back the, the next night, these gigantic blisters broke out all over my leg, which I'm not great with stuff like that. Anyway, and I'm like, they're gross. And um, we went back to the hospital and my mum was like, we need to see somebody like the summit not right. And there didn't seem to be any proper staff there. Uh, somebody came out just, you know, in um, just regular clothing and was like, oh yeah, it's a bit of friction, you'll be fine. Gave us a gauze. And then every day we were ringing and ringing and they just kept saying, it's just friction burn, it's friction burn. Until the Thursday when I woke up, this is five days later, and I woke up to go to the toilet and I stood up and the, the pain 
in the leg when I stood up, you know, when the blood sort of ran to it was, and a couple of the blisters had been popping by them, which was horrifically painful because they pop on the other bit of the burn. And I just collapsed on the floor in pain. And I knew then it was infected because the throbbing, I was going hot and cold, I was being sick and I thought, oh my God, I'm, I'm going to lose my leg here. So we got rushed to A&E. And they, put, they didn't know what had caused it because nobody was telling me the truth or what had happened. They were trying to cover it up, which is a really sad thing about medicine. Like in aviation, they're really open, aren't they? That's why it's become such a safe form of transport because everybody's honest about the mistakes. But in medicine, it doesn't seem to be that way. It's more of a cover-up thing. And that's something that really needs to change. And we can learn from it. And this won't happen to other people. But um, they, put, you know, they put a dressing on it. And then when I went back to the hospital on the Friday and my mum by then was like, Godzilla and she was like we're not leaving here till we have some answers I mean I was that I was like just out of it by then I was so poorly and weak and unwell I was just like you know letting mum get on with it and she was like right I need to see someone this is my child the nurse came in and she was like oh what are these and I said all oh, the dressings that they put on and she took one off she went oh let's have a look ripped it off and a big piece of my skin was there and I was like oh my god and I, I, it was just horrendous then I went into really bad shock because there was four more to pull off and they just there was just chunks of my leg missing it was just horrific it was like I was like this is this isn't real this just isn't real and then of course we went from there we knew we weren't going to get any help because the doctor the senior surgeon came in and just said it's a graze you'll be fine and if it's cosmetic damage you're worried about it'll be gone and I said cosmetic I said, you know what? My, my entire life has been ruined. I should have been at the Europeans in four weeks. I've got the world championships in six months. Right now, the cosmetic appeal of my leg is really the very last. It wasn't high on my agenda anyway, but it's really me living, not getting sepsis, not losing my leg and being able to do the thing that makes me me and, you know, makes me love my life has been taken away at the minute. I said, how can you how can you do this to me? Like, how, why are you not helping me? I don't understand it was, it had a massive emotional impact to them. My mum said, right, that's it. You get, you know, did they put this other dressing on? And she said, right, I'm not, I'm not trusting it. And we went straight to the burns unit. And when we got there, they were like, oh my God, they just couldn't believe what had happened. So they put the proper dressings on it um, and then debrided it, which is where in a burn, they take the dead skin off, which wouldn't be that bad if they could give you some pain relief, but they can't because after they've removed it, they have to put pins all over the burn to see which bits are alive, which of course is fine when in the bits that are dead, because a lot of it was that deep, it are dead. So I was like, can't feel anything, can't feel anything. And they go and be like, <laughs> it's like, it was one of the most painful things I've ever had in my life. So after that, a very, very slow, long recovery. Um, and yeah, it affected me massively. It really did. My, my, my confidence, my trust, definitely. My medical people took a long time, which isn't helpful for uh, sports people. Um, but yeah, that, that whole thing was just absolutely an awful experience. And that's what, you know, made me go in as a pro because it had to be something big to come back from that. Because I should mention I had eaten my body weight in chocolate because I was really miserable and I'd, I'd eaten a lot of chocolate. I mean, it was on crutches. And I remember once being at the train station and having about three minutes to get the train. And I thought, hmm, I can probably get a whisper gold before I got on the train and actually crutching like the Tasmanian devil, getting this whisper, crutching back to the train, like sweating, boiling hot, you know what I mean? Got on the train, I was like, it's so worth it. That, that was like, my life was chocolate, it was bizarre. So I was, 
I was uh, pretty pretty big after that, so it took a big effort to get all that weight off again. My so you'd had like all these knee surgeries and stuff playing football. Then this one happened when you were still boxing as an amateur, and then that was like the right. I'm going to be professional now. Yeah, because after to come back from that was massive. One physically was a huge undertaking because, and that's where I had to learn more than ever to break my goals down. Because thinking of you know I was 89 kilos, I was 20 kilos over my fighting weight which is an enormous amount and also that that leg you know my whole quad wasn't part of that weight either so there was a massive amount that was body fat because I'd completely lost the use of that muscle I couldn't train for months because of the risk of infection again as soon as you get sweaty that's it plus I had this gigantic dressing on uh, and what they use for a lot of burns is called silver dressing which isn't silver it's black and the problem with having it at the very top of your leg is that as the day goes on and that stuff starts to ooze out your dressing, it looks like you've had a pretty inconvenient accident. <laughs> so it's not great, you know, so it was, it wasn't, it wasn't any good for going to the gym or doing anything active. So I was, I was inactive for a long time, which physically isn't helpful, but also, as you'll know, mentally takes its toll because I, I wasn't getting that medicine that I need, which is training. So mentally I went downhill very quickly, but also that confidence of thinking, how am I going to go from this, you know, to actually boxing at the elite level again? It's, it is impossible. And I had to think, yes, but what I can do is go from this to leg raises, then leg raises to a few heel walks and then that to sitting on the bike and pedaling. And that, that's what I, that's how I did it. I broke it down and I had a training diary because I've had training diaries for years and um, and I thought, I need to just do a training diary, but for rehab. So treat it exactly the same way that I would prepare him for a fight. So record everything. Even if it's just 10 leg raises, put it in the book and then it's something I know I've achieved and a bit of progress. If we can do 11 the next day, great. So I had to then become obsessive and about the little things. And they had to matter just like they would if I'd done a PB on the 5K or the beat test. I had to treat it the same way. And then gradually I could feel it coming back and, um, so it was a long process and I think because of that because it was such a big thing to get back I had to have a massive motivation and the amateurs just weren't doing it the Olympics weren't on the cards it was another two years before the Europeans and Worlds and I think mentally the thought of that after what I'd just been through wasn't great plus I guess there was an element that I felt really sad that you can represent your country and not get any medical help you know because I wasn't an Olympic funded athlete I was kind of left to just some, God knows what that surgeon was like, one of those botch people. I don't know if he does conservatories as badly as well, who knows, but God knows who he was. But anyway, you know, I don't know. So it felt different. And But when I thought about turning pro, that gave me that fizz of fear in my veins, but excitement. And I knew I'd need something really big to get me back from that. And that was it, because it was you know, nobody was really doing it. Like I say, there was only six in the country at the time. And I thought this is somewhere where if a few of us who've had a good amateur career can turn pro, we can change the way that professional women's boxing is viewed. And, uh, you know, I thought I've been waiting years for someone else to do it. Why not me? And obviously I haven't got the platform that some of the others have got. Those Olympians have really made the difference because they had a high profile going into it. But you can still do your little bit that, you know, for other other women who haven't got that profile because they're not on Olympic weight either. At least they know now there's a pathway where you can literally go from the small hall shows 
to winning, you know, a big title. And that's what I wanted them to know that, because otherwise, yes, it's really important to have those ones who've been Olympians and all that. But what if that isn't an option for you? It can feel a bit, yeah, but that's them. So we also need examples of people who've done it from grassroots as well. Yeah. You um, mentioned quite a stark weight, like weight loss, 20 kgs. How do you do that? How, how did you, and how long did it take you to do yeah, that? Yeah, Bonnie's like, what's your secret? Yeah, what is your secret? <laughs> um, well, I, I didn't really understand nutrition at all until I went to GB. Uh, when I went to the GB boxing team at EIS, and they were incredible. I mean, the people there are just, from the coaches, the nutritionists, the psychologists, the physiologists, physios, like you name it, they're just incredible. Like absolutely superb, as I'm sure they are throughout the EIS for you know, all the other sports, but they're, they're unbelievable. So when I went there and met with the nutritionist, I started to understand about how foods affect you and what, what's going into your body. So they did um, like a plan for me based on my macronutrients. So um, fats, proteins, and carbs, uh, the good kind, <laughs> and um, not the kind I like. And they um, sort of went through with me how many grams of each I should have per day based on the body weight I wanted to be. And I just followed that to the letter. Um, and that's what um, got me to the fighting weight. Because I, I always boxed at 75. And I never thought I could make 69. I used to think there's no way I'd make that. I'd be weak. I'd be exhausted. And actually, I felt miles better at 69 than I did at 75. But I didn't know how to do it. So once I had that expert nutrition advice of exactly what macros I should be hitting per day, it was... And I felt great at it. I really did. The B... The odd day a week where I think I, I do need some sugar today or I need a big meal. Um, but I would only do that when I knew my body needed it, not when my mind was going, eat loads of, you know, what I mean? that little gremlin. I was like, no, no, not you. <laughs> the real one who's like, yes, we're feeling very weak today. Let's have some sustenance. That voice was all right. But the other one was like, chocolate, chocolate. I was like, shh, you know what I mean? But um, it was tough. It was really tough because you've got to be consistent with it and you never feel full. You do crave specific things. Like there's times when, oh my God, for one fight, I was properly craving onion up uh, crunch cornflake things. And I don't even eat them. I don't even eat cereal, but I was really craving them. And I kept seeing them in the supermarket and it was like they were going, I'm here. And I was like, oh my God, what is going to felt like? Every advert was crunching up. And I was thinking, what is wrong with me? And after that fight, I bought a, like a bumper box because I thought after the fight, I'm going to have, and I'd at the box by about three in the morning because you're awake because everything's hurting, your neck's hurting, your head, your, your whole body, as I'm sure it is after a tough rugby game. So you're awake. Plus your adrenaline's going and I just kept having a bowl and a bowl and a bowl and they ate the whole thing. So you do have them cravings, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's tough. It, it is tough, but it's doable, isn't it? And if, if you've got that goal, that's bigger than, than that, no matter how much you want chocolate, or you want to eat this and that, that goal to want to win those titles or be at your best is far greater. And I think you just have to keep that in mind. Um, but everybody has those moments, don't they? Where they kind of, I did have one in the middle of the night where I was that desperate. I woke up on it. You know, when your body's that drained from training and it's desperate for a bit of sugar. And I went downstairs and the only thing he had was a, a thing of hot chocolate. And I remember putting the, like a teaspoon in it and just thinking that'll do, shoveling it in, coughing, and ending up like with chocolate powder up my nose, all over my face, all over the cupboard. It was, it was absolutely ridiculous. And I was like, sat there going, 
what is wrong with you? Get a grip. You're an athlete. Like, you're ridiculous. And going upstairs with like chocolate powder just in every single orifice. It was ridiculous. But uh, that's how it gets you sometimes. <laughs> as like, a, so when you talk about going from amateur to professional, you, so as a professional, you can't fight at the Europeans or the world champs. No. In, but the whole time you were working full time, like you were never professional in the sense of fully funded. No. No, the only time it was anything close to that really was being in America. But mm-hmm. other than that, I've, I've always um, always worked. It was but women's football at the time when I was involved was not at the stage where I think we used to get 30 quid a game. And money was just coming into it when I went to America. So they had like the Fulham team. Arsenal, I think, were on a bit of money. Everton got a bit of money and, and places like that. But it was very, very much in its infancy that it, was, it wasn't like a, you know a thing that really happened not like it does it does now well you do like an absolutely smashing job of balancing everything you do I feel very inspired oh thanks thank you very much so if we we're bringing up your TED talks again because we're obsessed with them but in your TED talks you're like a massive advocate for women's sport we absolutely love it and when you talk about influencing that social change you always say like question it so like what is that to you like how can people yeah, like apply that to their daily life, I guess. Like what makes you say that? I think the question it, challenge it, change it bit comes from the amount of times you have conversations with people about, and, and you know, I had to unlearn, I don't know about you, uh, you two or your listeners, but I feel like there's a lot to unlearn as a female athlete and, you know, just in society in general, just like there is for boys, there's a lot to unlearn that they're taught that they should be this and they shouldn't be that. And as males get older, they hopefully will be questioning it and saying, but really, can I express my emotions? Is that actually healthy? And, you know, there's different, obviously, stereotypes we all face. For women in sport specifically, though, I think there's so much that we pick up from society. Sometimes it's very direct, like the fact that at times we've been banned from sports. Other times it's those nuances, isn't it? Comments and even the fact that girl is still used as an insult now, like that that does sort of tell you something as a young girl that perhaps there's something not right about being a girl, that the body image stuff, there's so much that even without it being said to us directly, we pick up on and we acquire and we have to unlearn that. And I certainly did because I grew up thinking women's sport wasn't as good. And I remember getting that first England call up and going to my boss. I worked in like a factory warehouse type place when I was 16. And when I got that first England call up, there was no holidays available on the rotor for the week that I needed for the Europeans. So I went to my boss and I said like, oh, you know, I need a week off, but there's nothing available. And he said, what do you need a week off for? And I gave him the letter and I was so excited, stood there like, oh my God, you know, really proud. And he, just, he kind of went really quiet. And then he looked at me and he said, you want me to give you a week off to play for a women's football team? And I said, oh, it's mental. Well, I know. And I said, well, it is the England women's football team. And he made all these jokes and like innuendos and, you know, put downs and stuff. And I was like, Ugh. and I didn't really, and I said, well, look, it means a lot to me. Can I just take it unpaid? Well, yeah, if you must. And he signed it. And I went out of that office feeling really small and ashamed really what I was doing. And I felt like an idiot for thinking it was such a big deal to play for not the England football team, but the women's England football team. I didn't tell any of my colleagues and friends that I was going. Even during the anthem, I was thinking, 
this isn't what I thought it'd be like. It's not the same. Da, da, da. So those kind of things need to be unlearned that actually, when you look at the story of women's sport in and of itself, it's phenomenal what we've achieved. And some of it, some of the barriers have come about from people not questioning it. Like I don't use ring card girls. I have kids who are mascots, just like we do at Wimbledon or the football. And until people say, why do you do that? And they say, oh, why do we have ring card girls? What, what's that about? And how does it, you know, how is it that that's more acceptable role for women in sport, but me being an actual boxer isn't like it. There's something wrong with that picture, but it's not till you question it exactly with like women's running for all those years. They were convinced if we ran long distances, our uteruses would fall out that those things actually stop people from doing physical activity because nobody questioned it. Nobody actually thought to say, it's funny, isn't it? Cause you know, Barbara over there, she's given birth to four kids and, you know, a baby came out of there and yet a uterus just stayed in position. So I think a bit of jogging, <laughs> Barbara would be all right. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't until Barbara was like, oh, I'll have a jog and see what happens. And Barbara got home. I don't know if it was Barbara or whoever. Got home and was like, no, my uterus is there. We're all good. And then other people were like, oh, that's all right. You know what I mean? How ridiculous that not questioning that kept, held us back for so long. So I think questioning, challenging and changing stuff is is really really important part of it like like you question things and like I question the use of tomboy why do we use tomboy to describe professional female athletes who've got this incredible list of achievements it diminishes what what we've done and what we're about and I think that's what the importance of language is it's very very critical the way that we use language obviously you've and a lot of female athletes have experienced like people calling you butch or like presuming you're a lesbian yeah, how did you never let that get to you? Or did it get to you and you just have learned to ignore it? Yeah, it did when I was a kid. When I was younger, it did. And it sort of, I don't know, it was it was difficult. Because obviously, I mean, some of my friends who were friends at the time, they were quite homophobic as well, even though they were gay. And obviously I didn't realise, but looking back, they were going through that transition of, you know, realising or starting to explore or whatever their sexuality and, I think they felt the same though, that it was kind of, as a young teenage girl back then playing football, everybody would assume that you were gay. That that was, you know, I, I'm really, really hoping, I mean, I'm not a teenager now, so I can't say for definite, but I do think there's a, there's a shift in that now. But back then it was very much a, a thing. And I remember all of us as youngsters, it was about four of us that went into the first team, you know, and there were obviously that, you know, there, there were gay women in the team, but we were quite like, Oh, I don't want to be anywhere near him. And I don't want to be associated with that. And we didn't really, we were 14, you know, we didn't know really what we were saying. We didn't understand about it. And I think that's really sad how that impacted our perspective of a lot of things of ourselves, of sexuality, of all sorts. And I think, you know, as it turns out, I was heterosexual. I mean, I thought I was at the time. I wasn't really interested in doing anything about it. I was just all sport, you know, as a 14 year old. But I think back for my friends who were starting to, you know, sort of have feelings for women and explore their sexuality. And I think how difficult that must have been for them at the time because there was such a stigma. And I know there still is, which is wrong. So, yeah, I think it affected us in a lot of ways. Now I'm older, of course. It only annoys me from the point of view that we it's typical pigeonholing and stereotyping of people, but it doesn't bother me at all. Like when I was a teenager and people used to go, oh, you're probably, you know, some of the derogatory words that they use about gay women. And I'd be like, no, I'm not. Why are you saying that? You know, and I'd get angry. But not now, because it's... I had a phone call about 
was about 18 months ago, I think, and a lady rang me and asked me to be a speaker at um, this event. I said, yeah, yeah, you know, and we chatted all through it and women's sport and this, that, and the other. And then right at the end, we'd have this whole conversation. And she said, I'm really glad you're going to be a speaker because, you know, you're um, a real advocate for women's sport and uh, out and proud. And I said, <laughs> oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I went, oh, no. She went, what? I said, no, I'm not, I'm not out and proud. And she said, you're not proud? I went, no, no, I'm not <laughs> I'm ashamed. I'm just not gay. Like, I, I would like to think I'd be proud no matter what, but I'm, I'm just not gay. And she just went quiet and she went, you're not gay? And I went, no. And then she said, well, lots of people think you are. And I said, did they? I said, well, do you know, I don't know who they think that bloke is who's with me on all my pictures on social media. If I've just got a very close relationship with an uncle or a brother or something, I don't know. But that guy who I'm like always on holiday with and at meals with and hugging, that's kind of, that's my guy. Do you know what I mean? He's not a cover up. He's my actual boyfriend in real life. And she was like, oh, oh. And I thought, I said to her, what this is, this is the stereotype, isn't it? I mean, it's not like my social media's got rainbows on it or pictures of me at Pride. Because I guess if you have a lot of that, somebody might think, oh, the, the part of the LGBT community, maybe you would, you know. But I haven't, not for any reason. Um, I've been I've been to Pride loads of time with my friends, but it's not like, it's not, there's nothing on my social media at all where you would think, oh yeah, that's, you know, they're LGBT. There isn't. It's literally the sport that I do and, I don't know, whatever, maybe just the way I act, my voice, God knows, but something puts me in that stereotype bracket. But it doesn't bother me at all. I just said to her, look, I, I'm really happy to still come and speak, but I can only be an ally. I can't, you know, I can't. <laughs> can't be the full thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can't, you know what I mean? I That's can't. hilarious. But yeah, so it, loads of people assume that, but, you know, it don't, don't bother me at all now. It's But I do think it can have a big impact as a youngster because you're at a teenage stage you know you're already trying to figure stuff out yourself aren't you and it's all a bit awkward and you know and then to have people putting these stereotypes on you I know for me it was difficult I remember whenever I got in trouble at school which was frequent to be fair but a lot of the teachers would be saying you know maybe you need to speak to someone about your sexuality be like what are you talking about I don't know what you're on about and they'd be going and they didn't really want to say are ah, you gay but they say these things about sexuality. And I didn't, they didn't really teach all that in schools. Kids now are super aware because of social media and everything else. We weren't back then. We didn't even have the internet. Like we didn't, gay was kind of a bit of a, a bit of a vague thing that we weren't really sure what, you know, what it, what it even was. I mean, we did, but we didn't, if you know what I mean. Not like now, I mean, kids are, kids in the school where I work now, they'll, talk about being pansexual and bisexual and they're so aware which is great they're really really aware but we just weren't so when they'd say that like little code thing of you know your sexuality I was thinking what are they talking about like what what are they on about do they think I'm what do they think I'm doing like as so teachers think, teachers thought like, you were acting out because you were like coming to terms with your sexuality but actually yeah. you were just being a little shit yeah I just had massively and I used to say to them I've got loads of energy. Your lessons are boring. I, I don't see any connection to what I'm learning now to what I'm going to be doing. I'm only interested in sport. I can't do that here because you don't have the sports and the curriculum that I want to do. I wanted to be playing rugby and playing football and all that. With the, I didn't want to be doing, um, you know, I didn't mind a bit of trampoline and hockey and all that. They were fine, but I, I, they just weren't for me. Do you know what I mean? But you didn't get to pick them, did you? I wanted to be like, playing football and, and rugby and that with the lads. I didn't want to be doing the sports that we were doing. 
and dance, had to do dance. And I wasn't really into it, not the kind of dance they did, pirouetting about and that, it just wasn't for me. So I'd say to them, you know, sport's my thing. I don't get to do the sports that I really want to do. I don't see how any of this that I'm learning has anything to do with the rest of my life. And I was definitely right about that. And, you know, I, I still think the same about education and I work in a school, but I think we, we miss, you know, what's relevant to a massive cohort. And I was one of them. So, but plus I got picked on all the time. People calling me, you know, shim and shemale and all that. You know, it's not going to make you dead friendly to everyone. I was angry all the bloody time. So it was nothing to do with my sexuality. I was, I didn't particularly enjoy school. My own life wasn't that great at the time and people were picking on me. So yeah, I was angry and pissed off all the time. But of course, if you say that to teachers, it doesn't go down well <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> so it kind of brings us on quite nicely to your public speaking and the projects you've been involved with like but you're a big advocate of trying to move away from these gender stereotypes and creating more of like an even playing field and some of the things that you've done have you spoken at United Nations European Parliament about women in sport focusing on that diversity inclusion and motivation how did you get into this? I don't know really how the how the public speaking kind of I think you just get asked to do stuff don't you? you know like give awards out or do whatever so I did a couple of them at the beginning and didn't really think much of it and then it was actually a referee a boxing referee who ran this big company I still don't really know what they do I know it's something to do with stocks and shares and money but it's just dead grown up so I don't really know what they do but it's like they shift millions about like it's proper proper stuff so he asked me to do a talk for their women in business event so I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't really do stuff for businesses. It's not my thing. Like, they're all about money. They're, they're not, it's not my people. And he was like, no, no, I really think you should come. And anyway, I went along. Um, and that was the first one I'd done that was like corporate. Um, and I went go along in like my GB tracksuit because I was an amateur boxer back then. It was this really nice room. The women just looked like from another planet. They were like, you know, properly done up you know they looked amazing they had like all these really nice suits they, they smelled amazing they were like you know like you know rich top level business women and there's me heterosexual as well probably <laughs> <laughs> so there's i've no idea to be fair but probably <laughs> so i'm like oh my god i bowling in my tracksuit with like do you know what i mean I'd, I'd made an attempt at putting a bit of my best makeup on that i could and um, sort of straight in the air, like, you know, I'd, I'd gone all out and I got there. And they were like, like, looked amazing. I was like, Jesus, what am I doing? So anyway, I get in and I just did my talk, like, as, you know, I was just honest and whatever. And it was just amazing afterwards. It was like, because you forget, or I'd forgotten that they're just, you know, sisters and mums and daughters and friends and just women like me who'd had similar experiences either in business or in sport. Loads of them had had a passion for sport and never got to do it. Or they'd said, I really wanted to do this in my life, but I couldn't do it. They said women couldn't. Do you know? And I thought, right, it's my own things that have blocked me here. And then once I was open to doing stuff in businesses, it it changed a lot. And, and I love it now because there's loads of businesses that genuinely, yeah, there's some that do stuff to tick a box. We all know that. But there's loads of them that genuinely want to use their platform for good whether that's about gender, race, the climate, all the different things that people are passionate about. You know, some companies really do take that on and they really want to make a difference. So I've I've actually got a lot out of going to speak to businesses. It's been a real privilege. So that's how it came about. And then the UN 
it was interesting being there because there was someone from the Olympic Committee that spoke before me about how amazing they're doing at diversity and inclusion and <laughs> everything. And they are in, in one way. But then uh, I spoke after and I was like, actually, and I wasn't using statistics or graphs or numbers. I was a, a real human with my heart on my sleeve talking about how completely devastating it was when they announced the next Olympics, you know, before 2016 and said, we won't be increasing the weight categories. And it was honestly for those of us that were, you know, top amateurs and had won medals at, it was just devastating. And remember me, I won't say a name just in case, because it's her privacy, but there was two of us that had been on the camps being assessed for the podium. And they'd said, you know, we couldn't be the actual weight categories because I was far too small to be a 75 kilo. And my friend was too, you know, it would have been a danger to her body to be down to 60. So we were both at the weights we needed to be at, you know. We were, and I remember we'd been going through the assessment system for months and we were saying, you know, if they bring it into the Commonwealth or they bring our weights into the Olympics, we've, you know, this is it, this is it. And when they said they weren't, honestly, it was so, so devastating. And the pair of us, we were just in bits and we had to go home from Sheffield. She had to bloody sit on the train all the way back to London, the poor bugger. I had to drive back from Thingy like I'd just been through a horrific divorce, like all the way home, like, <laughs> like the whole way. It was horrible. It was absolutely, it was just awful. And But that's where a lot of that fuel comes from for me that I can't stand the thought of that happening again and again and again generation after another that that heartbreak and the big thing about paved the way is gender stereotypes never being a barrier to human potential and it's so important because imagine those of us and you will have had some of these experiences I've had it could have been on that pitch as a seven-year-old when everyone laughed at me and said that bloke was like get off the pitch she's a girl she shouldn't be hearing that humiliation and could have made me go that's it that's it it would do for a lot of kids and totally understandably. And that's awful. Imagine me not having this life that I've had and sport being taken away from you two and me. I can't even imagine what would have been, what would have been, and this is happening all the time. Boys as well. You know, I get a lot of letters from parents whose sons love ballet or something like that. And because of the stigma and the name calling and making fun of them, they give up and it's horrendous that, you know, Putting up with stigma but still doing what you love is one thing because no, none of us would swap that, would we? We've all faced it. And, yeah, of course, it boils your blood when you read these things on Twitter or there's barriers and stuff, but we're doing what we love. We'd never swap it. But these who, it actually stops them and you never, ever, ever get to pursue those passions or dreams, whether they're any good at it or not, you know, they never get to fulfil that potential. And that is just so sad obviously come to me attention by going to businesses that this is the same in so many other industries and that's why I've paved the way sports at the heart of it <clears throat> excuse me but it's about both genders and it's about all industries because the amount of women I've met who really wanted to be an engineer years ago and they said you can't do engineering you know we don't have women on the course done and that was their thing like sport was for us and they just never got to do it and spent this life doing traditionally women's roles like there was one woman I met at an engineer's who she was 47 and she'd wanted to do it at school engineering, spent a whole time in the shed with the dad, making things, building things like I did sparring with my dad, desperately wanted to do it, asked to do it. And he said, girls can't do it. And that was it. Just her whole thing knocked on the head. And she'd been a, a secretary for years and years and years. This highly, highly intelligent woman with like so much potential never got to pursue it. And, 
she didn't mind being a secretary, but she wasn't fulfilled. It wasn't what she wanted to do. Some people were massively fulfilled doing that. That's absolutely fine. She wasn't, though. Like, I wouldn't have been fulfilled doing anything other than living my best possible life as an athlete, as you two are. So she'd eventually gone back at the age of 42 when her kids were growing up. She had the chance to go back and learn, and now she's on the pathway in engineering. But she should be running a company or be a manager by now, and she's on junior level at 47. And these are the barriers and they shouldn't be there. So it, I just can't stand for it anymore. It's, you know, we've got to, we've got to do something and we've got to be doing it now as, as we all are, thank God. And that's going to, you know, just like I say, as other people have paved the way for us who came before us, we're doing it now for, for the next ones coming through. And it's really vital. I feel so inspired. I know, Sarah. I'm like, this is, the real reason that me and Rona do this is just to be personally inspired by all of our guests. But this one's been so good. <laughs> just having a chat, you liars. <laughs> I'm like, wow. Yeah, this has been like an educational webinar for us. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, absolutely yeah. love it. And yeah, if anybody listening wants to find out more about Stacey and Pave the Way, then it's all on your website, isn't it? Or go to your Instagram and get Yeah, we haven't got a website for Pave the Way yet, but we because we only got charity status in the middle of the pandemic. We kind of we haven't even got a bank account yet. We just we've just signed all the paperwork for the bank account. So it's like really slow steps, but it's so hard to set stuff like this up in it. I mean, obviously you will have had to do it for a podcast like how do we do it? How does it even work? And it's like that with a charity. It's like, oh my God, I haven't got a clue. So it yeah. takes ages. We completely yeah. winging it at the moment. Like, completely. <laughs> but you, but, sometimes you've got to, haven't you? It's, you've got to, and then it, you kind of figure it out. But at least you're doing something, because otherwise we're all waiting for someone else to. And we need to do our bit, don't we? And that's what's important. And it's brilliant what you're doing. It's absolutely fantastic. It really is. Oh, cheers, Stacey. I love podcasts. I really enjoy them. I think they're fantastic because you don't get that anywhere else nowadays, do you? Like, you don't get these proper in-depth conversations. You get a quick snippet of something, and that's what I really enjoy about them. Yeah, and like an interview, a written interview, like you do miss like the emotional side of it, and yeah, we love it. Same. And it's still someone's interpretation of it then. Yeah. We've all done oh. that. You give an interview and they leave a bit out and you're like, that Hang on a minute. Like, yeah. Why are you hitting me like that? I sound like an absolute idiot now. Yeah. Or they'll literally like write something that you you did not see. Like, yeah. Like, well, that's a fake a, yeah. We also have a different dialect. Like the way you say something in your local dialect to the way that I do, it doesn't sound right when it's written in the written yeah. form. So I always have to try and remember when people ask me questions that are going to be written, how will this sound written down? Because it, it, it's totally different when you when you say it, it sounds all right, but written down, it just sounds ridiculous. So that's another thing, isn't it, for us? Love it. So we're going to finish with our, so we're calling it Juicy Cues. It's basically like five meant to be quick fire questions. Sometimes we drag them out a bit. Things that, yeah, just like random things about yourself. So if you're on board, then Bonner, <laughs> do you want to take it away? Okay, so question one. Would you rather play all of the instruments or speak all of the languages? Instruments. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Me and Rona disagree slightly on this one, but I would also... Well, languages would be an, an amazing super skill, but it's like... I, I, the only thing why I'd pick that is because if you're really desperate, you can get an interpreter or do like Google Translate or something. But with an instrument, you can't. You have to be able to 
just play that yourself. So that's probably why I'd pick that because with technology now, you can do it. And <laughs> although I have to tell you this, when I was at the UN, I think I've talked about this because you, Rona, were saying about your accent on the podcast and stuff. And this is why even if we spoke other languages, they still might not understand it if we spoke their language in our accent. Because when I was at the UN, that someone from Nepal had been before me, this incredible woman who does like mountain climbing and rock climbing and that, she was unbelievable. So everyone had the earphones on to translate from her language. And then they said, oh, you know, Stace Copeland, who, you know, speaking about women in sport from England. And like, everyone takes their earphones off and I'm like, hi, did it? And I start talking. And about two minutes in, I saw like Australia, Canada, like all these countries go, and put their earphones on. And I was like, oh my God. And no, like no one understood me. So I might as well just play an instrument. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. The accent struggle's real. It is. It really is. But you know, part of the problem is we don't hear enough of them. Like when anything serious is on the television, it's always that like one version of English, isn't it? Mm. Like if you've got an regional accent, you're allowed to be a comedian or like a presenter or a bubbly hello da, 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 type person That's so true. but like when it's like the, you know there's been an earthquake you can only say it like that you can't say hey there's been an earthquake same thing <laughs> no that's no 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 that'd be more banter yeah it's got to be there has been an earthquake it's got to be like that voice so I think we get used to hearing that and we don't hear enough of other accents do we right number two what's your coffee order I don't drink coffee Oh, no. so we did Lucy Adams last week. She doesn't drink coffee either. Yeah, no, I don't drink it. I have uh, the only time I ever have a hot drink, which is extremely rare, is uh, hot uh, Vimto. I have sugar-free Vimto, which I absolutely love. It's like my main drink. So, yeah, so I even used to sacrifice a bit of clothing when I used to go to America and take a bottle of Vimto. <laughs> I remember getting out and I got there. One of my American friends was like, oh, my God, what's Vimto? I was like, what? Really? <laughs> it's Vimto. But I was like, have you not heard of it? And they're like, no. And I was like, my God, where is this place? But yeah, that's my drink. Okay, question three. What would be your bake-off speciality? Or like, if you had to bake a cake, what would it be? Right. I had to go at Protein Cookies about six months ago. <laughs> I think I put it on our group, Rona. Like, they started off, they looked all right when I put it in the thing and they came out like something that you might dig up, you know, if you were like an archaeologist never seen anything like it so if i if i did bake off i i just dread to think i've had to go at a couple of things and they've all gone horribly wrong I, I tried a certain type of pancake once and that come out like omelet but with bits of bread in it or something that just looked terrific and then i tried the old, the earliest thing i remember trying a, a proper bacon as a kid was at food tech in school and you know when you have to put chocolate in the bowl to make them crispy things with chocolate on and i didn't have enough chocolate in the bowl and it just all started sparking everywhere and all smoke coming out of it. We won't see you on Celebrity Bake Off then. <laughs> Definitely not. Okay, question four. If you're to do well, if you're to do a sport other than boxing, what would it be? But you're not allowed to choose football either. Do you know what? I was I was saying to uh, my boyfriend last night when we were, we were watching the Six Nations, um, and I was saying to him, like, I definitely yeah. No, definitely. If, if if it would have been sort of opportunities to do it as a kid, because I think it's a pretty good mix of football and boxing in a way, rugby. I yeah. think you'd be bloody class like, at it. Yeah, you would be. You've got any Scottish in you? Yeah. 
I'd, I'd have loved it. And my, my uncle, both of my uncles were massive, like rugby players. They played all their lives. And so they were like massively into it. And it definitely, definitely would have been something I'd have loved, but there weren't any opportunities at all around here. But plus uh, the last few months, I've been presenting the rugby league show on our local radio and I absolutely love it. And the, the people are fantastic. Like whether it's head coaches, owners of clubs, players, the, the light boxers, the down to earth, sort of salt of the earth, genuine people with no kind of, you know, airs about them. And, and that's what I love about the sport as well, the people. And I've always, I've always thought that because through my uncles knowing the teams and that, but now I've been interviewing a few of them and, you know, they're the best in the country and yet they're very, very approachable down to earth and all that. And they're my kind of people. So I'd, it, it would have been uh, rugby. I, I definitely would love to have had a go at that as a kid, but it wasn't about then round here. But yeah, I would have loved it. So rugby. Okay, final question. Me and Ron are pretty big on this. So what is your star sign? Leo. I'm a lion. Oh, you're a Leo. August, baby. <laughs> yeah, I'm a lion. King of the jungle. <laughs> nice. I like it. You too. Oh, so I'm an Aquarius. And Ron is a Libra. See, it's funny because Leos aren't really interested in other people, but you just asked to be polite. <laughs> That's yeah, why you do an individual sport. Yeah, we're yeah. not really interested in other people, but you know, it's uh, you might, um, a couple of my sisters are um, Aquarius. They're like watery and quiet, aren't they? Well, quiet. Oh, Bonds is not quiet. <laughs> watery, yeah, you surf. Yeah. We'll give you that one. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Cheers, Stace. That was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. Absolute pleasure. Because we are doctors, lawyers, mothers, footballers, first minister, port laureate. We're on the move, and I'm telling you, the glass ceiling's going. We're coming through. Rise up, eyes up, take the stage. Play your game, don't be afraid. You're a work of our, our Jones of art. Always be proud of who you are.